Hi, this is Jared Murphy from City Limits. And Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Uh, Jared, we're talking uh, the day after primary night. Uh, mayor's race, what's your, what's your takeaway there? Uh, you know, it was a night with few surprises, starting with the mayor's race. I think that that is pretty much if you had to drop what was likely two or three days before the voting, that's what one would have said. Um, turnout was really, really low. Um, that said, the mayor did increase the number of votes he got over 2013 by about 44,000, even though about a quarter million, million fewer people participated this time. So, you know, I don't know what to read into that. I thought the mayor's speech was interesting um, in that he talked about this crusade against the status quo, which typically incumbents have a hard time framing, but it certainly is not necessarily illegitimate on its face. Um, I think that some of the ideas he mentioned, the policy ideas he talked about there were, were not new. In fact, some of them were ones he's mentioned since the, the last campaign, the millionaire's tax being one of them. Um, I think it is um, interesting to think about what would have happened if others had joined the race uh, and if his opponents had more money to play with, uh, you know, a thousand other things to think about. But the result we have is that he pretty clearly is you know, the choice of three out of four Democrats who bothered to show up, and that's what counts. So he got about 75% of the primary vote. Um, obviously, Sal Albanese's closest competitor, who got about 15%, wasn't that well-funded, isn't that well-known, hasn't really been around, hasn't held elected office in 20 years. Um, but de Blasio did quite well. Nobody else did jump in, Scott Stringer, Ruben Diaz Jr., etc., um, going into the general election, does de Blasio have a lot of momentum or because of the turnout? Is he, you know, that's, these are some of the things I'm sort of wrestling yeah. with. You know, I don't think anything, it's funny, it was, it, it, it was a, a test that didn't alter trajectory at all, right? It, I don't think it gives him a significant boost because it was such a low profile primary and turnout was so poor. And it wasn't a challenge. He'd want to see you overcome a challenge. It didn't really seem like one. But it also doesn't hurt him at all. You know, I mean, I think if he had... I think they're he, breathing a huge sigh. I yeah, think they if breathed gotten a huge sigh if he had gotten 60%, if he'd squeaked away with 54%, yeah. we'd be talking about an entirely different story yes. this morning. But we didn't. He basically won about as much as you'd expect him to win, given that there's always going to be some people who are brought out um, out of antip antipathy to the mayor. The way that his mayoralty has gone, 75%, I think... It's really good for him. You know, he's been dogged by these investigations. He's, not, you know, he comes across in a way that a lot of turns a lot of people off. He's mm -hmm. had some of the NIMBY stuff with development and, and also some legit concerns about development. Uh, I don't want to just, you know, uh, say NIMBY in a derogatory way. Um, but I think they're breathing a huge sigh of relief in his camp, and they did last night, and, and that now he goes forth and you could see the wind at his back in that speech. Um, you bring up, you know, what he said of substance about where he's trying to go if he's given a, another term. And there's some talk out there, and I'm trying to wrestle with this as well, does he need to come up with a bunch of new ideas? I mean, over the last six, eight months, he's come up with some big things that he wants to accomplish, closing or setting the city on a path to close Rikers, the 100,000 new good-paying jobs, 3K, a um, couple other things. Obviously, he's got these tax proposals, but that's sort of just like red meat to his base, I think. Does he need other splashy things? Is he is he holding on to some things for the general so he can sort Oh, of, definitely. I mean, yeah. I would suspect. I mean, the fact that the mayor has talked relatively little about what he wants to do with his second term 
you know, they've only got the one commercial on the air. I mean, there's seven or eight weeks now in which she can roll out other other things. I don't know if there'll be a, a huge number of new policy ideas other than the ones that mansion tax, millionaire tax, fair fares, closing Rikers that are already out there and give him plenty to talk about. I do think he'll want to make sure he's not in a position, you know, I, I think he recognized that in that first debate with Sal Albanese, he was very much on the defensive. And I don't think he wants to be in a position merely of defending his record because the fact is, fairly or not, his opponents and his critics in the press um, have managed to diminish his successes and perpetuate this idea that he's a terrible manager. <clears throat> and I think he's probably a little tired of fighting that fight and probably knows it's a fight that uh, he's just not going not gonna to win, mm. at least not win straight up. So talking about what he wants to do, putting a vision out there, and, you know, squelching, I think, that the idea that... Um, He's just sort of uh, holding holding that, that spot for a while and then has his eye on national office by talking about some city-focused ideas he really wants to accomplish. I think that's that's probably to his benefit. So, you know, there's, there's a little room here coming off of a strong primary night where nobody can, re- other than pointing to the turnout numbers, nobody can really deny him, right? There's no real room for interpretation other than if you say, well, nobody came out to vote, which to me is tacit approval among Democrats of how things are going. Um, but, you know, I don't see, so there's, so there's a little bit of breathing room for him, a little bit of a reset almost with, with the media and in other ways of sort of hungering down now in both managing the city and running the city and running this re-election campaign. There's not a lot of room for going out of town over the next two months, right? So he's sort of got this window, and if he does impressively in November, that window extends a bit. But there's already a, a bit of news in, in, there was a Politico, not even Politico New York, larger Politico article about some of the Dems in 2020 that just had a brief mention of de Blasio already sort of talking to people about going on a speaking tour around the country if he's reelected. So, you know, I would think for him, uh, you know, there's not going to be some transformation. I don't think he's going to totally change how he approaches things. I don't think he's going to start to be seen as someone who's really on top of the day-to-day operations of the city. And I don't think he's going to toss away those ambitions of a, of a broader audience, especially if he wins a, a second term. You're probably right. I, I think that he recognizes as a smart politician that Elections, including commanding election victories, whether primary or general, generate capital, which is the most precious thing a politician can have, political capital, especially for a guy who otherwise is a lame duck, assuming he's not eyeing and won't succeed at getting some higher office, maintaining that capital for as long as he can, trying to build upon it and using it is pretty critical. And it can, you know, it can go away pretty quickly. We saw Mayor Bloomberg, a very different re-election experience in 2013, but his third term started off pretty rocky and was pretty rough for the first couple of years at least. Um, I don't think de Blasio wants that. I don't think the city wants that. So whether it's something transformative or just some smart strategic politicking over the next two months, three months, between now and the next inauguration, maybe a little bit after that, um, he's going to, I think he hopefully has a plan, he's going to want to have a plan about how to use that capital. It's important to recognize that you know, he's not the only player on the field. I mean, the city council elections yesterday set up eventually the vote for the next speaker. That will have a lot to do with what he's able to do with that capital. So figuring out how to play behind the scenes or not so behind the scenes in that race will be something I want to think about. So he's obviously a heavy favorite, but we're going to be following closely over the next two months as he faces Nicole Maliotakis, Bo Diddle. It looks like Sal Albanese has the Reform Party line. That was kind of a 
interesting aspect of Sal's um, Democratic primary concession speech was saying, looks like we're going on to November because he got that Reform Party line, it looks like. Um, and then do you think, be, I mean, I think that works to de Blasio's advantage. I mean, he doesn't need much of an advantage, it appears at this point. But the fact that there are going to be three candidates, or even if you discount Albanese because, you know, maybe he's maybe he's played his last card. If you're just talking about Dito Lamaliotakis splitting the anti-de Blasio vote, I mean, I think the best thing for him is the fact that there is going to be more than one other name on the ballot. Absolutely. And the way the two of them are already approaching it, they're going after each other, they're going to try to crowd each other out as the main anti-de Blasio voice. Uh, that's not going to go very well. That's going to look... If you talk about two potential people that could get really caught in that quagmire as candidates, these are two prime people. And throw Albanese in the mix, they the three of them might wind up arguing a bunch about all sorts of things, including who's the big anti-de Blasio voice, and the mayor might be able to sort of stay on the sidelines. So, and the interesting uh, thing in that is is how Malia Takas will handle it. She is an elected official. Um, you know, she's shown herself to be working very hard, um, running as scrappy a campaign as she can. And she is the one of those three, really the only one that has potential future viability. And we don't need to look any further back than Mark Green to know that how you handle a mayoral campaign, how you handle a losing mayoral campaign, can affect the rest of your political life. And so Malia Takas, I think, will naturally want to be careful about how much she gets drawn into that because uh, it might be a Pyrrhic victory if she's, you know, outdistances Bo Deedle and Sal Albanese, loses to the mayor, and then, you know, vanishes any hope for future citywide or higher office. Right, and I mean, good, you know, the good thing for her is she doesn't have to give up her assembly seat here, right? So if it doesn't work out for her, she's got that seat, and then she's also built a lot of name recognition and perhaps some cachet. But again, it goes back to, as you said, how she handles it. Now, I also... I want us and myself and Gotham Gazette and, you know, everybody else, really, to not see it as a total foregone conclusion mm -hmm. that the Blasio is going to win. There is a map. There is a path. Mm -hmm. um, but, as you pointed out, Maliotakis's path, or even Deedle's path, because one big question I have going to this general is, could he possibly get more votes than Maliotakis? But, you know, Bo Deedle may be actually more uh, more appealing to some of the voters that she's trying to appeal to, you know, who voted mm -hmm. for Donald Trump for president and who are more conservative Democrats. Right. Well, he is the anti-political candidate this year, obviously. And yeah, he would naturally be the person who inherits that sentiment. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, Bill de Blasio is living proof of the fact that you really can't look at an election eight weeks out and say, here's how it's going to work. I mean, anything, literally anything is possible in politics if you work hard, which she's doing, um, you have a decent strategy, which she might have, and you get a couple breaks, you yeah. know. She needs a bunch of money. Um, that, other, that, that that would be key, you know. Uh, yeah, that would yeah. be. Uh, other races yeah. yesterday, did anything jump out and surprise you? I thought Eric Gonzalez's margin in the Brooklyn DA race was very impressive. That shows you a little bit of the power of sort of incumbency and institutional support, all the unions and elected officials that backed him. And, you know, maybe if it was him head-to-head -head with somebody, it would have been, obviously it would have been different, but, you know, it was a crowded field and he did extremely well. Um, and incumbency was very strong in the city council as well. I mean, we'll see what happens with Margaret Chin's race, but other than that, you know, incumbent, well, is at, on the verge of losing, you know, she, but she might pull it out and then no incumbent would lose. Um, and then, you know, the, the state legislators trying to come to the city council is very interesting. Looks like, well, Felix Ortiz lost trying to take out Menchaca and Robert Rodriguez might've lost against Diana Ayala while Jonai Diaz Sr., 
and Francisco Moya, I think to the relief of virtually everyone, uh, won in Queens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, um, you know, in many, each of those districts is obviously different, right? There's a different story. You don't want to like draft a narrative onto races in different parts of town. But in a lot of the cases, you had uh, an incumbent opposed by more than one, you know, serious candidate. That certainly was the case in Fernando Cabrera's district. Um, it, Matthew Eugene. Matthew Eugene. It might be what has preserved. If, if Margaret Chin pulls it out, that will almost certainly be mm-hmm. what has saved her. Right. Um, so it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting year where we see the the two things that really distinguish New York City's political system: term limits and the campaign finance system. Um, really playing a, a big role. You know, the campaign finance system made some candidates um, who had raised very little money basically on par with folks who had raised a lot more. Um, in other cases, because the matching system didn't work to their favor, candidates were left without very much money at all, and there were vast uh, financial differences. Although in Joe Nye's case, he spent a lot more money, and, yeah. and he won by a modest, uh, to say to the most, margin. Right. Um, and term limits, too, obviously, de- determining you know, who chose not to challenge people for, for higher offices. And, you know, there's another way that the CFB system and the public matching system comes in is what you said about the crowded fields. Uh, you know, maybe the maybe any challengers wouldn't be able to, to really mount much of a campaign against an incumbent, but once you have this system, you do get the two, three, four challengers who chip away and sometimes let a Margaret Chin eke it out because there are, isn't just a head-to-head matchup. On the other side of that, a couple of incumbents who we thought were maybe vulnerable and were basically in head-to-head matchups, Lori Cumbo, Helen Rosenthal, did very Commanding, well. Commanding, yeah. yeah. Uh, Rosenthal, I mean, that was a, a, a race that I thought was going to be much closer. Mel Wymore was second place to her in 2013. There did seem to be some antipathy to her in the district. He was running a very serious campaign, had a decent amount of money. But she won a commanding yeah. a victory. I think that's pretty resounding. And Combo, uh, I'm pretty surprised Ed A. Fox didn't do better. But you know, one of the things I was trying to say, and and maybe we should have done a, a better, you know, deeper article on this. But you know, this Bedford Union Armory became like the narrative for that race, and the district's a lot bigger than that. Uh, not everybody was a single issue voter clearly in that race, and it wasn't just about the Bedford Union Armory. I think that was sort of clear and maybe missed a little bit, even though that was so controversial. You know, that's a really good point. It's something I've been thinking about over the past 12 hours, which is, you know, uh, you have to be very careful in interpreting what election numbers mean, right? We see them because we we graft a narrative onto a particular race. We see the result as reflecting a verdict on that narrative. Uh, but that's obviously sort of, you know, adjusting the parameters of the debate to make for an easy story for us to write people voting for or against a candidate, people choosing to come out and vote or not, be very, very careful about assuming that it reflects any one theme or, or rendering or decision. And that actually kind of segues to a, a maybe a final point. And I wanted to ask you how, you how you feel about this, because, you know, we may not have real races over the next seven weeks. There may not be a very strong or smart campaign. There may not be very much buzz about it. How much responsibility do you feel, what do you think is the responsible approach to covering races where there's not much going on? Do we have a responsibility to say, look, there's not much going on, but here's what this guy says, here's what she says? Or does that create 
a false impression of a more competitive environment that really exists. So here's a, it's a great question. I'm upset that you put me on the spot having to answer it, not vice versa. No, I, it's, it's good to have a chance at it. You know, one of the things that I think is risky is there's, it's hard and we've both tried to do this, but it's hard to have people on the ground really getting a sense of these things, right? So what do we do in the media? We look at campaign finance filings and we look at what, jobs someone's had and if they have any ties to organized labor or this or that some of these sort of signals of support we try to see if there's something controversial in the district that seems like a a turning point potential issue um but you know i think we have to assess those things but i also you know and i also think it is the responsibility of the media to give voters information, right? Give voters more information than, you know, they might even know that they're looking for, or at least give them the option that it's out there. If they're saying, what's going on with this race? It doesn't, you know, there's someone on the ballot against my incumbent, but it doesn't seem like anything's really happening here. You, you, I don't know. You give it, you give some information, you put it out there. I mean, you know, we've looked at even pointing to the fact sometimes that there's no competition as a sign of, of, a, of some sort of systemic problem. Um, but I think we absolutely must continue to sort of follow this and see what's happening in some of these districts where maybe there's grumblings, maybe there's issues, maybe we can give some assessment of constituent services, which is such a big part of these city council jobs. What do you think? Yeah, I think that that's generally how we approach it. You know, journalists have a lot of different functions, um, analysis, investigation, exposure, but sometimes just, you know, plain old public information is, is actually valuable and part of the service. And I think, you know, if it's a choice between not informing people about a, a choice they, they can make, a choice to go to the polls, choice to pick one or the other candidate, uh, versus not doing so, I think we would always side with information. What makes it tricky, I think, for almost all media organizations, but especially ones like Gotham Gazette and City Limits, is the triaging how do you pick which races you yeah. think? And that's what, and it involves, you know, there's no polls in city council races. You got to go with, with guesswork, with impression, with the fact that you're not going to be an expert in that area. So it makes it tricky, um, which is a safe way to say if you're listening to this and, and are rich <laughs> and want to donate yeah. some money to Gotham Gazette or even better yet, city limits, uh, you know where to find Equally us. Good. Um, lastly, but I do, I do want to follow up on that and ask you, do you get discouraged in this work by the turnout numbers? Uh, you know, I was having a little bit of discussion with a couple of journalists on Twitter this morning at 6.30 a.m., you know, about that. The way I have, I have rationalized it this year is the turnout makes me discouraged as a citizen. You know, like I believe in democracy. That's a big reason why I do this job. And it, it does it does get me down. As a journalist, I actually feel as though, especially for a, a media organization that is not a household name, it actually can mean we have more impact. Because if you get a thousand readers on an article about a race in which four million people vote, your impact is fairly small. If you have 80 to 100 readers in a council district where the margin of victory in a race is a couple hundred votes, um, where maybe a few thousand people voted, then while that's not a great thing for democracy, it does mean you, you could play a potentially big role in that. So I feel you as get though... Right, huh? it, yeah, you gotta get it right, huh? Yeah, you get it right. And I feel, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's depressing um, as a citizen. Uh, but as a journalist, it sort of gives you uh, a reason to focus on doing the work better because, you know, it can it can really matter. There's not much margin um, in some of these races, and uh, a little bit of journalism can go a long way. Yeah, I agree. And um, my final uh, couple thoughts, and then if you have any others, take us out. But, um, you know, uh, one thing 
you know, that I'm looking at here, I want to see how this mayoral race goes in the general. I'm, I'm hopeful. I wrote, you know, a column in Daily News about this a few weeks ago that the race is not what I want it to be in terms of how it's being approached by candidates who are focusing on the wrong things and are, you know, Nicole Matakis is focused on every theft and, you know, assault that happens in the city and it's just not ringing true to the fact that, you know, crime in the city overall is going in the right direction and, you know, some of those types of things. So uh, just a better, sharper, more positive focus of the race and I hope it's a good race, but I I have some struggles believing it will be, Um, but we'll be following closely. We should point out one of the maybe beyond the three citywide races, which will all have, you know, a Democrat and a Republican at least, you know, sort of slugging it out. Um, there is going to be a competitive general election in City Council District 43. Yes, that might be the only one. Yes. yes, that might yes. be the only general election that's competitive in the City Council. So we should point that out as we look ahead. Justin Brannon and John Quaglione won their respective primaries, Democrat and Republican. So that'll at least be somewhat interesting. Um, but there's plenty to follow on here um, over the next couple months. I agree totally, including uh, how the election went yesterday with um, polling places and people finding their names in the list. We haven't heard much about that. Maybe that means there weren't many problems. That would be good. And, you know, turnout in the primary and the general and whether that... Um, increases the momentum for something we've talked about before, which is, you know, the press the, the, the pressure for changes in how we how we vote, trying to make it easier to register, make it easier to vote, um, and whether that is a case that will be made by the numbers on November seventh. That's one thing we'll be watching watching carefully. Sounds good. Stay tuned everybody.